Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey gang, welcome back. Got a great show for you this week. Travis Krause joins us from South Texas to talk about what it's like ranching on his home place that's been in the family since an 1846 Spanish land grant. We talk about carbon, we talk about cows, we talk about chickens, and how Salatin's model didn't work for him. So here we go. Welcome to the show, Travis Krause. Good to meet you, Brian. You too, Travis. How's my sound? Is it okay? Yeah, you're fine. Okay, great. Nice background. That's that's about where I want to be right now. <laughs> oh, I wish I was there. <laughs> <laughs> A couple weeks ago, we were out and uh, we were on our way to EL. So we stopped by, we went to Lake City, Colorado for a few days on vacation. And... Yeah. Uh, uh, we left here. It was like 104. We rolled in there and, uh, it was 37 that first night we were there. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Woke up the next day. I think the high was like 52 the next day <laughs> and raining. It was a, yeah. it's a nice break from, you know, July, August in the plains of over a hundred. Are you guys getting a heat wave right now, Travis? Yeah, you know, we've we've actually had a really mild summer, one of the most mild ones that I can remember. Um, and we, we actually have not been over 100 degrees until today, and then uh, which is unusual uh, for South Texas. Uh, usually the 100-degree weather starts in June. and uh, But no, uh, yeah, we've got a bit of a heat wave coming on. They've got 100 for the next, like, 10 or 11-day, you know, 10-day forecast has 100 degrees every day. But the humidity this year is wicked because we had like 30 inches of rain in the spring. So yeah, um, there's a lot of moisture in the atmosphere. It's a very active atmosphere. And uh, whew, 100 degrees with like 80% humidity is pretty brutal. So when you say South Texas, like South Texas is still an area literally the size of Kansas. Where, right. <laughs> where are you at in South Texas? Yeah, so... Um, I, I live uh, west of San Antonio, about 60 miles near a town called Han, uh, well, Dehenis to be particular. And that's where my family's ranch is. Um, it's where I still live with my wife and my kids. And then I, uh, I commute over to a ranch that we lease uh, near Pandora, Texas, which is on the opposite side of San Antonio, southeast, uh, about 45, 50 miles the other way. So I commute over there like one day a week. Okay, that was my next question. Like, every yeah, day? Or? No, okay. no. Yeah. So, 
the beauty is, you know, I, I get to still live over here and at my home place and do my thing and, you know, uh, have time with my wife and kids and the guys are over at the ranch in Pandora running that. And, uh, yeah. So. Well, tell us a little bit about your home place. My home place. So the home place was, uh, given to my family through a Spanish land grant in 1846. Oh, wait, really? That, yeah. that old? Yeah. Oh, dang. Okay. And, so Travis, I know nothing about you either. So this is good. This is Yeah. Yeah. No. So, um, I am, I'm like almost like a, a ninth, legacy, ninth generation yeah. or something like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, we are a legacy ranch. Uh, it's, it's relatively small these days. It's only about 500 acres, the place that we actually own and reside on. Uh, at one time it was much bigger, but, uh, as most traditional families have always done, they just keep cutting it up every generation, you know? And so you can imagine it's been cut up quite a few times in that time period. Uh, you know, and so I, I actually moved back to the family ranch in 2009. Um, so I, I grew up here though and went to high school here in town and, uh, and then went off to Texas A&M university and, and studied conservation biology. And, uh, then I traveled all over the world working for a couple of years, um, in, uh, parasitic disease. Uh, oh, really? And livestock. Yeah. Livestock and parasitic diseases that are transferred to people. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, cutaneous leishmaniasis was one of my specialties. Um, so is there a that... common name for that one? No, no, okay. there's not leishmaniasis. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, did some work there for a little while, and then moved back and had uh, that was in 2009. I'd sort of been reading. Uh, oh. Joel's books and stuff like that had sort of intrigued me and I sort of became disenchanted with my work abroad and moved home and uh, wanted to give ranching a go again but like a lot of people was very discouraged from doing that most of my life uh, not to mention, I don't know if I really wanted to come back at that time when I was a young guy. I mean, it was, yeah. uh, it was all, uh, it was all work here, you know, and for free. Uh, and, uh, so Sounds familiar. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, came back and gave it a go and gosh, we did, we did the whole CK, we did the whole Solitan model for 10 years. And how was that? It was that brutal. pitch or the transition. Like, did your well, family push back on that? Were they like, mm, uh, well, when you say Salatin model, like, did you jump off in at whole hog and get, you know, the pigs, the chickens, the turkeys, the geese, the ducks, the, the sheep, yeah. the goats, the cows, everything. So we did, we did pastured broilers. We, so there was no, there was no processing facilities to get it done. And I knew the only way that we were going to even make it work was pastured broilers because of the ROI eight weeks. Right. You know, and I, I didn't have much money saved up from my work because I had paid off all my student loan debt um, with every bit of cash that I had, which was like $60,000 in student loan debt. Yeah, I paid, congratulations. paid it back in like, I paid yeah. it back in like two and a half years because wow. I was living abroad. So I was yeah. living tax free. Yeah. 
and, and all my expenses were paid for. So I was like, well, this is perfect. You know, I'm just going to pay off as much debt as I can. And, uh, but my, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, Mandy, she had a little bit of money saved up like 30 grand, you know? And so we built a processing facility here on the farm. Texas was pretty strict about it. It wasn't going to be just some kind of a little lean to like Joel has, you know, (laughs) and that they get away. Well, you know, I don't blame them. It's hot as hell here in Texas. Why would you let anybody process meat outside? Okay. Uh, yeah. We have flies galore. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it anyways, quite honestly, for food safety purposes. Um, and, uh, so we built a facility, uh, by ourselves, you know, and started, uh, we were living in the old ranch house here where my office is. It was built in 1891 with no air conditioning for like three years, which absolutely killed us. But I was kind of used to it because I was living in India with no AC and it's hotter than hell in India. Um, and uh, we, we like just eked by, you know, we were killing like 10,000 birds a year. We were doing a thousand turkeys. At one time we bought like a hundred pigs and we raised those one year and did pasture pork, which was an absolute disaster for my personality. Um, and, and all that time we did have cattle and we started doing the, you know, regenerative type grazing early on and, you know, took us time to get that perfected. You know, the hardest part of it was we just didn't have anybody we could go visit. Right. In 2009, this was not no. This was not a big as big as it is now. I mean, we would have to drive all the way to Virginia to go see somebody that was doing what we were doing, and we didn't have the money to do that. You know, so or to um, even talk it, to anybody. Like, yeah, just I mean, there was we we couldn't yeah. connect ten years ago. No, that's right. There was no. You know, and, and the information out there that was available was pretty much just Joel's books. And Greg, I think, had published maybe one at that time, Greg Judy. Mm-hmm. You know, and then Alan Nation, some of his books were published at that point. I mean, I, I'm a an avid reader. I could, If I could move my desktop, I'd show you my giant wall of books, you know. But I had read a lot of the old books by, like, Rodale and uh, Sir Albert Howard and all that stuff back then because it was the only thing I could get my hands on, you know. Right. And, uh a lot of the old, uh, you know, organic farming type books, Masanobu Fukuoka and stuff like that. Just trying to learn the philosophy of how to raise animals right and stuff, you know. And I, I originally kind of really stumbled onto it with permaculture, to be quite honest with you, when I was in India. Permaculture would was you, kind of a big that deal. Was your, would you say that was your aha moment then? I know. I don't know if I really ever had an aha right. moment. Okay. I think that's just a question I like to ask. Is what would yeah. if you could have an aha moment? Yeah. What would it have been? If yeah. I could have an aha moment, it would have been that first year not to do the Soliton model. <laughs> I, I was gonna. I, I want to circle back. I mean, you you mentioned something about you know your last year there in India. You noticed something about their permaculture. So can we talk about that a little bit? Mm, I mean, you know, I was working. You know, I don't know. They don't call it permaculture, right? Okay, first of all, that's just how they farm. farm. It's just how they farm, and and it's it's a very uh, hands-on, labor-intensive, but like very in sync with nature in a lot of ways. Now, that's not to say India. I mean, the <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever been to India, the environmental degradation in that country is some of the worst I've ever seen on this planet. Um, it's 
I mean, imagine 1.3 billion people living in a country one third the size of the United States. Right. There's, there's just nothing left. There's nothing yeah. left. It's too many people. And they're, you know, mining the resources, whatever that may be, soil, whatever, trees. They're mining it like there's none left because there isn't. <laughs> but, but you know, you had these like small little farms because I was working hand, you know, every day in these small villages that no white man ever goes to basically in the poorest parts of India because that's where types of organizations work. And, um, you know, it was uh, very eye-opening how these people literally – pretty much subsisted on their own without any kind of outside help for the most part in these very rural villages. And it was what we would identify as permaculture, basically, you know? But, so. And then probably, you know, government accountants would call it subsistence farming. Yeah. And the people that do it would probably call it not a bad way to make a living. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly right. So what are, what, what are some of the ob- observations that you saw there that, that really made you want to adopt more of permaculture and Salton-type principles? I don't know if there was anything in particular, Brian. I think it just intrigued me, and it started my – it just really started my – I've always been – yeah. I've always just been a curious – I was a traveler, you know, very curious type of person, and it just sort of started me down this path of looking into, like, alternative agriculture in a lot of ways hard to really put like a you know okay particular place and time that really intrigued me but you know and and that sort of led me to permaculture and then permaculture was sort of like oh hey there's this guy Joel Solitan that does pasture poultry and beef and da 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 you know okay so to pick back up we're doing chickens we've had a pig wreck and we're starting to ramp up with cows Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's about right. Life is starting to get pretty interesting at that point. Um, um, you know, we're going down the track and, you know, farm's looking better, but we're still not making a living at it by any means. Uh, I, uh, I was working uh, part-time as a uh, crop insurance adjuster just because it was an easy way to make money and it was super flexible, you know, and, which is a really crazy whole other spectrum of our agricultural system. And I got to have a lot of firsthand experience with that. And, uh, you know, I, I, we had, you know, a lot of really, you know, I'm I'm not going to like, I'm not the one to be too cynical or anything, but it, it was rough, you know, looking back at it, I'm like, God, how do we even pull that off? And it's because we were just, we were young and full of energy and wouldn't give up, you know? Right. And there was so many times looking back at it where I'm like, God, we should have just stopped and done something else. <laughs> like, you know, but, um, we, we had our first child, uh, who's now six, almost seven, Jack, our son. And that was really a, a time where I started to really question it because of the labor model, you know, we had already been through the gamut with employees and volunteers and, you know, abuse labor in a lot of ways that we shouldn't have, you know, uh, even ourselves, you know, not paying ourselves and my mom and my spouse and other people that came to help us, you know, and, 
And, and it sort of was my aha moment where I was like, this model, this model really doesn't have the labor part figured out, you know, because most of these guys that are doing this stuff, um, uh, really exploit their labor in one form or fashion, uh, you know, in my opinion. And, and so, uh, having our child was really that wake up moment for me because all of a sudden my spouse wasn't able to help me every day, you know? And, and so it was like, wait a minute, like we need to start looking at this harder. Um, you know, I had, I'd done holistic management training very early on 10, 11 years ago when we first started. So I was real good on the financials and the, and running the business side of it. And, you know, I start looking at the financials and I'm like, man, we really got to grow this thing to scale it up or we have no real business model here. Um, because that's the only way that we were going to be able to afford to pay ourselves the wages that we needed and other people. And so that's what we tried to do over the last, you know, five years of the business was to really scale it up, which is a very capital intensive thing to do. We took out a big loan from the bank to buy cattle and stuff like that and uh, an operating line of credit. And uh, it was rough, you know, like it's really scary, you know, having money borrowed like that and don't own any land. It's all leased, you know, and, um, you know, running a business on a day to day, plus trying to maintain work life balance with family and friends and other things that I actually legitimately wanted to do with my life. And, right. And then our second kid came along three years ago, Max. And that was just, it was a proverbial straw that broke the camel's back really because um, then, and, and my mom had passed away um, shortly after Max was born from brain cancer, and um, she was only in her mid-60s, and she, she had been a very uh, integral part of our business, and uh, so I lost two key people in my business and had to rely on employees, and um, things were going along really well. Uh, we still owed a lot of money, had a lot of animals, we were running a pretty... Uh, we're starting to get viable, right? Um, right? Paying myself a small salary, covering our health insurance and things that were necessary. And then COVID smacked us in the face last year and sales were amazing, right? Like we almost did a million dollars in gross revenue. Oh, wow. Wow. And, and, uh, but it burned us out. Oh, I can't imagine. Because right? I had finally got the business to a point where me and most of the guys were able to get go home after an eight-hour day, mm-hmm. most, of, most days. There were some long days, but we were trying to be real. You know? Right. And then COVID came, and we're back to work in 14-hour days. Sometimes we would start at 4.30 in the morning, and we wouldn't get home from deliveries until midnight and then start the next day again. And that kind of growth is just totally unsustainable. Um, it burned everybody out. Uh, we weren't mad at each other. We were just legitimately tired. Yep. And we didn't have enough cash to go out and start hiring new people or buying more vans. We still had a lot of money in the bank. And I'm just looking at our, our numbers at end of year, this last year in January. And uh, I'm like, this is, this is stupid. I, I, I kept on asking myself, can I see myself doing this for 10 more years? And the answer every morning when I woke up was no. That model, question that model, yourself. that yep. model, you know, 
And uh, so I had already made the connection with Lou uh, years ago, you know, and doing some so consulting. Lou? We have to tell yeah, Lou who? Lou, <laughs> Mor- Lou Mormon, who, who owns, uh, co-owner Pasture and Map. founder yeah. of Pasture Map and SoilWorks Natural Capital and my new, my, my, my new business, <laughs> Grazing Lands. And I had done some consulting over the years. Yeah. And Lou had hired me to help get his ranch started. And so we stayed in touch. I'm the one who told Lou about Pasture Map. Mm-hmm. And I had talked to uh, me. I think Christ- it's me and you talked it, about it too. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Christine, we were tra- we were troubleshooting some software problems with with pay- Pasture Map had its fair share of those early on. Oh, absolutely. Brian and Lou always told those. me, he was like, keep an eye out for businesses that might be, you know, good investment. Well, I asked her one day, she was telling me, she was like, well, we'd love to fix this problem, but we don't have the money right now. And I'm like, well, I know this guy maybe helped solve this problem. And that was sort of the beginning of SolarWorks Natural Capital and mm-hmm. Pasture Map being purchased and all that stuff. And Lou and I, uh, I helped him get Wholesome Meat started in the early, early days before Kent came on. And then he took off and has done amazing with it. Yeah, and, so for our listeners, Wholesome is yeah. also just another company that Lou right. has or just the fun has. Right. So yeah. we um, might be dispersing all this information that people aren't supposed to know. I don't know. But anyways, <laughs> okay. you know, so, so Lou and I uh, kind of came up with this, you know, a big part of grazing lands of what was going on was grazing lands sort of came into fruition because we realized that wholesome was going to run into a supply chain issue. If right. they ever got big. And the nobody in the regenerative space has, well, I say nobody, there are some at scale, like white oak pastures is pretty dang big. Right. Um, They're at about 6,000 head. Uh, But, you know, a lot of people have not scaled this model up really big. And that's what Lou is really good at doing, right? Like that's Lou's. And there's a lot of questions. Like there's a lot of critics that question, can it even, can it be scaled? Well, I agree with you, Brian. Uh, But you know what? That's what we're here to figure out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, that's sort of what Grazing Land's mission is to do is to scale up that grass-fed beef, doing it regeneratively production model, not just finishing them in, you know, feedlots with alfalfa pellets. So, um, you know, we're, we're learning some stuff. Um, and you know, I, I, I say that if I could go back 10 years and tell myself not to do the solitaire model, that would be the best advice I could have ever given myself. But, you know, in hindsight, it's, it's what gave me that education to get where I am today and gave me an opportunity to learn how to build a real business and learn the ins and outs of economics and planning and, all those things, you know, and sort of, it was my, uh, it was my master's and PhD in, in, Absolutely. in the ranch yeah. business, quite frankly, um, w- without, uh, you know, without going to a real school, so to speak, you know, uh, before we kind of dive into a few things, sure. What does regenerative ranching look like to grazing lands? Like, how do you, how do you define that at, at the corporate level? Well, what we, you know, what grazing lands does is it leases ranches for grazing livestock, and we're going to use the regenerative 
or we are using the regenerative practices and principles to improve soil health, biodiversity, and sequester carbon, if that makes sense. Um, so at a, you know, that's a thousand foot view, right? Right. Right. What are, what are some of the regenerative practices you like to implement first? You know, it's, it all falls within the context of the property, but we're, we are a, a cattle business in the business of growing and finishing grass fed livestock. And, uh, my apologies. It, Did you answer it, that? It 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 happens. Uh, One of our previous guests, uh, Cole Bush, (laughs) she has sheep and goats like in town, and I think we got interrupted three or four times by her phone. I I mean, you got to check it. I mean, if if you got sheep and goats in town, the last thing you want is no kidding them getting out eating somebody's petunias or you know (sighs) prize pear tree. Yeah, I've had my fair share of cattle on the highway. That's for sure. Um, That's always a heart stopping moment. It is, um, you know, when, when we go to these ranches that we're leasing and implement these systems, um, you know, there's a whole myriad of things that we look at, whether it's, uh, the existing infrastructure and what needs to be added, but everything is based on that, that stalker phase of the cattle, uh, where we're growing them out. You know, we're implementing a practice where we're rotating anywhere from three to four times a day, depending on the pasture, all the way, uh, and sometimes as, la- as little as, as every three days. And uh, realizing that in South Texas, um, you know, it's not big open fields most of the time. There's a lot of brush and forested areas and creeks and things that we have to work around like that. So we do our best to uh, create animal impact while also focusing on animal performance, which are two very different things that are really hard to balance actually. And what we've realized is with stalker grower finishers, we're, we're in the, we're in the business of putting pounds of gain on calves. I mean, it's as simple as that. (laughs) And, and to be able to achieve animal impact, like a hundred thousand pounds an acre, it's not going to happen because we'll lose animal performance. It's just not possible most of the year. Um, there are very few time periods in the year where the weather is cooperative, the temperatures are cool enough to achieve that kind of, of, of animal impact without sacrificing our average daily gain. Um, because the reality is I've got to be above about a pound and a half ADG to have a financially viable business model on the average for the year. If I cannot get it up above a pound and a half, we are, we are leaning towards uh, – some pretty scary economic numbers. It could get, could get pretty scary. And I get that. And you know, nothing like where you guys are at, but every year is different. And there's some years that, you know, yeah, I can, I could probably slam steers in for 90 days on strip grazing and, and do really well on top of two pounds a day. And then there's years where uh, they might not do anything, no matter what I do, you know, moving them every two, moving them four times a day. It just, might not matter because the forage isn't there. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, also going on to a new landscape, we don't know the quality of the soil and the quality of the grass. And, you know, yeah, we can go in there and we can take soil samples and we can take forage samples and try to start understanding it. And, you know, we can do our ecological, uh, you know, surveys and stuff like that. But 
you, you really don't know until those calves are out there and you're bringing them in, you know, 90 days later and weighing them. You, you just really don't know what's going on. And you can, you can visually every day, you know, my guys are out there moving those cattle. So they're looking at them for visual cues. Um, but even then, uh, without a very well-trained eye, uh, you, you don't know what that ADG really is until you put them on the shoot right. and weigh them. So it, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, and, and, and maintaining low input costs and, and those factors. I mean, it's, it's a tough business to be in all around and it's a tough business to scale up because there's so many things that are out of our control. Like um, what? Besides weather. <laughs> like, well, you know, uh, when you need to put together a group of a thousand calves, uh, find find me a producer in the United States that has a thousand calves that are going to perform on grass in South Texas. Uh, you know, yeah, good there. question. You know, yeah, I they're not there. They're I can scrape because... up about sixty or so right now. <laughs> Give me another well, year, me and too. I can get well, about one hundred and fifty. Well, me too. I can I can scrape up about two or three hundred. But, yeah. uh, you know, so there's, there's those factors of the genetics just really aren't there for heat adapted genetics for grass fed finishing operations. Um, I mean, the environmental factors, geez, uh, that 30 inches of rain hoof rot. Well, when you're moving your cattle, yeah. when you're moving your cattle every day on a 6,000 acre ranch, sometimes you're eight miles from the pen. And you're and you're and you're in an antibiotic-free program, okay? How do you how do you get the cattle back to the pens or get them to a place where you can treat them every day? I mean, we were having steers pop up. We were trying to catch them at a locomotion score of like two or three before they got to a four or five, and you know it's it's like every day my guys were walking out there and here's a new steer limping, you know. And so there, there's a lot of things that when you get to these kind of scales, um, there's a lot of unanswered questions, you know, and we figured it out. <laughs> I, I mean, it was, it was interesting because you know what most operators will do is they'll walk out there with a dart gun and, and shoot them with new floor or, or, or one of the other antibiotics, you know I mean? Right. And, and, and go on with their day. Well, we were trying to get, you know, being an antibiotic free program, if, if I have to give them antibiotics, they're out of of my program, they're out of my program. So we were having to catch them early on at when they're, when they're, you know, just starting. So that early, early locomotion score, like I said, a two or three, you know, on the lameness scale and try to treat it with uh, copper tox or something like that, where uh, we could put them on dry ground, treat them with copper tox and avoid having to give them antibiotics. And, and we did it successfully. It was just a lot of work. Um, you know, we ended up only having to give uh, antibiotics. If we, we pulled probably 60 or 70 head almost and only had to give antibiotics to like seven or eight total. So like a 1% of all the animals we pulled, we gave antibiotics to. So right. I, I consider that a success to be quite honest with you, but you know, it was, it was interesting. So there, there's just so many factors that, uh, getting, getting up to this kind of scale and, um, you know, trying to do it in a regenerative manner. And when I say that, I mean all the way around, right? Like in a very holistic approach, not just the way we graze them, but 
you know, the antibiotic free and the stockmanship and no chemicals and all these other things like that. We got, we got a Mentally, lot of physically, yeah. right. Yeah. Mentally for the guys making it sustainable for them because it's, it's tough getting out there every day, trekking poles through the brush, putting up fence, <laughs> taking it down. Um, I mean, they, they put up like two, three miles of poly a day, you know, and, and we, we, we're that's no joke. And, and it's not, and we're using some pretty cool technology, the Range Ward technology from Norman Ward up there in Canada. We're using his units to uh, to keep it modular and keep it flexible. Right. Um, but that doesn't make it easier going through the brush and the mesquite trees sticking you and all every other brush in South Texas wants to poke you. And, and, and not to mention, I think we have the highest density of rattlesnakes in South Texas. Uh, they see like three or four a day. Yeah. So, so on top of putting up, on top of putting up fence, they got to watch where they're stepping so they don't step on a rattlesnake. <laughs> what? So That's it's, fun. It's, you know, it's 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 not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, I guess is my point. You know. Well, if it was easy, everybody'd be doing it. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. So you said you started um, grazing lands to address a supply chain issue you saw with Wholesome. But you're also saying you're having a supply chain issue of being able to find enough good genetics of uh, grass calves with good genetics, right? Yes. Yeah. Why? Well, it's an easy well, answer. I, well, the the answer is we're, you know, I think, yeah. Why is because um, our industry has been dominated by feedlots for a long time now. And regenerative, you know, to be quite frank with you, um, we're, we're still in the early adoption phase. And uh, the industry as a whole has a major lack of infrastructure to support it. Everything from cow-calf operators all the way up to processing facilities. Um, because even with these cattle, you, you cannot just send them to uh, a JBS packing facility doesn't work that way. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's, you know, to, you know, to be quite frank with you, it's, it's, it's simply because it's, it's in the early phases. It's yeah. we're, we're, we're mo- almost everybody's still early adopters. Well, and you know, we totally get that processing is, is a bottleneck and processing is a bottleneck. Not just in the grass-fed side, but it's a bottleneck for everybody right now. You know, and yeah. there's a lot of small and mid-sized plants being built. And there's a lot of producers that we talk to that I interact with that are like, yeah, I want to cut my input costs. You know, yeah, I want I want my cows to be on grass more of the year. And it seems like, you know, every couple of months goes by, you know, we're seeing – I'm, I'm hearing about somebody new, you know, t- trying to breed in, you know, trying to get into the grass fed beef, but it's addressing these bottlenecks. You know, we can't just say, well, somebody else will build a packing plant. All I got to do is breed the cows. I can't just, mm-hmm. you know, I don't need to worry about breeding the cows. I'll just be able to buy the calves and I'll just be able to finish them on grass. Well, you know, there's got to be, you know, there's got to be some guys that know how to manage grass that have cows that know how to grow cows 
to be able to sell the calves to guys like you, to be able to finish the calves, to be able to move them on down the line in the process, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it's like a chicken and egg problem. Yes. You know, what What needs to come first, the chicken or the egg? Well, you can't build an egg without a chicken, and you can't build a chicken without an egg. So how do we build it? Well, we're working on that. <laughs> Money. Right. Money. We need capital. We need capital to, to flow into this. And, and I mean, you know, quite frankly, I mean, that's what soil works, natural capital yeah. is. That's the whole purpose of the fund is an attempt to direct capital towards regenerative agriculture projects. So, you know, that, that fund is looking at everything from the production side uh, to the, you know, the, all the way to the packer. And, uh, you know, look, we're, it's still in the early phases. The fund's only been there for about a year now, <clears throat> but, uh, I think we'll get there. You know, the, the, the thing that I would, uh, I'd argue with you there a little bit, Brian is, uh, I don't think there is, I don't think there's a lack of processing from the phone calls that I have every day with big processors and mid-sized processors and, and even small ones, you know, there, there is availability there. It's not like all of a sudden we started raising 10 million more head of cattle in the United States. Right. You know, but what I would argue is that there's an overproduction issue, um, going on in our country right now. And it's been going on for decades, uh, through government programs mainly. But if we're uh, overproducing, the, why are we importing? Through the influence of overproduction. Well, we export a lot. <laughs> we export a tremendous amount of product I, I, into I, the global marketplace. I, I get that. But if we're overproducing, why are we importing? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to have importing an overproduction cattle? and an importing and, and, and be importing as well. It doesn't make economic sense. Yeah. You're, you're talking about cattle specifically. Yeah. And, and we, we don't have to get into that. I mean, it's right. Right. Yeah. Well, there's all sorts of price structures there that affect these things in crazy ways. I, I want to go back to the phone calls you're getting from big and medium and scale processors. Like, what are they looking for? Are they are they wanting grass fat? I'm calling. I'm calling them to do my processing. Okay. <laughs> no, they don't call me. I promise you that much. They don't. <laughs> I wish, Sorry, I had that backwards. I wish that, I wish that was the problem, but it's not. Um, It'd be a good problem to have. Generate a little competition in the market. Yeah, no kidding. Um, no, you know, I've had some conversations with some pretty fair-sized processors that do a 1,000 head a week and above that have availability four to six weeks out. Yeah. I would say the biggest issue is not is, – is, is, yes, availability to midsize to scale, producers that are attempting to scale – all the processing slots out there right now are for the really big dogs in the game. Yeah, like and full, and full pens and multi-load lots yes, that'll keep them. And they've got them, and they've got them secured, right? And and the issue is that mid-scale producers or 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 meat companies that are trying to build a real model. What do you define you know, as mid-scale here, just so we know what we're talking well, about? Well, a hundred. Let's say a hundred head a day processor, right? Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. That, that's about what you would be able to work with as, as a small producer, say somebody that's going to kill a thousand head of cattle a year. Right. Um, and, and that's the type of process that you're going to work with and, and maybe a couple thousand head of cattle a year. And you're going to send them a pot belly load at a time. Those, those pr- processors take pot belly loads. Right. Um, and uh, the, the issue is that um, there aren't enough of those processors in particular that give people the next step up. Right. So going from like a small producer, like my ranch was Parker Creek ranch, killing 150 a year, I can work with all the local guys that do like five or 10 head a day, you know? And, th- and then you got to be able to take the next jump though, up to, you know, a thousand, 2000, 3000 head of cattle a year. Right. Well, the, the processor that you're going to be working with is that hundred head a day processor. And that's at mid, what I consider mid scale. The, the USDA doesn't consider that mid scale. They could, they consider that small still. Um, and, and what's, uh, what we're finding difficult is, is number one, getting those processors to work with us because they, they, they really don't. Um, when you tell them you're a grass fed producer, they just sort of, you know, they <laughs> shrug their shoulders at you, you know? And, and, and then number two, the quality. Is it, is that why? Quality, quality is system? a massive issue. Quality is a massive issue. Yeah. I'm talking about quality, quality and attention to putting the label on, so the packaging being good, oh, okay. good enough to put on a retail uh, space because most of those processors don't work with retailers. They do box beef. Right. But if you're going to build a meat business, you better not just be in the box beef business. You're going to have to have a retail brand to make it economically speaking. You know, so. Well, Mike Calicrate says stay out of the box brand. beef. You got to be able to build a brand. Yeah. Say that again, Brian. Mike Calicrate said, "Stay out of box beef and try to stay away from the wholesale. Go direct to retail. Direct to retail. Because if you're if you're trying to play in the wholesale market, the big guys will crush you as soon as they notice you. Yeah, depends on what kind of capital you have, <laughs> <laughs> how much money you got, you know, to play to play the game. Because uh, what Mike Calicrate does is he it took him 30, 40 years to build that business, and he he." probably lost quite a bit of money along the way and uh, there, he probably had some lean years and absolutely but he persevered and you know that guy's got a good business and uh you know, i agree he's got some good ideas i don't agree with everything that he has to say but he's got some great oh, I, ideas i respect what mike's done a lot you know and i respect his perseverance but you and i both know the reality is that that kind of perseverance is not for 99 percent of people no absolutely not so, I think you mentioned it earlier, but uh, your your foray into Salatin style management that failed because it's it's still kind of predicated on cheap labor, isn't it, or undervalued labor? Yeah, however you want to put it, um, it's uh, you know it's it's predicated on that, but it's also look it. I don't care how you look at it; it's a tremendous amount of work. Um, you know, getting out there and moving birds every day and then, oh, I got to go move the pigs and we got to move the cattle. I mean, it is like a uh, orchestrated chaos out there every single day. And there is a lot to be said for being focused 
in a business, you know, and, and, oh, not to mention, forget moving the animals and feeding them. You got to go market the product. You got to do Facebook and you got to do Instagram and you got to go do the farmer's market. So people get to know you. And then you got to go, you know, like, I mean, it's just, then you got to go fly yeah, out okay. to the mother earth convention yeah. then you got to go on Joe Rogan and, and you gotta, yeah. And you gotta, you gotta store it all in the freezer and then you got to worry about what the hell happens when the next hurricane comes and knocks out my power for seven days. And like, you or it's just like, yeah, or, or snowpocalypse in Texas, you know, and even though, Hey, the temperatures were like for once in a lifetime, cold enough to just open the freezer door. <laughs> so it's like you know i mean power's out what do we do with all our food (laughs) take it outside (laughs) that's funny you know so i mean and and oh by the way if you're gonna be raising chickens and the the chicken nearest chicken processors eight hour drive you're gonna be processing your own birds yeah and which was the case for us when we first started so i mean it's it's like it's like a business that has like 20 businesses in it you know and that is really a that is a recipe for failure for most people. For most people, that is a recipe for failure. And I've seen over my time so many businesses fold um, because of the the mainly just the, the 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 pressure of it just builds on you, and the anxiety builds up, and you know uh, people just become unhappy. I've seen a lot of divorces over it. I mean, I've seen all sorts of crazy things in the years I've been doing it. And, you know, yeah. so it's a, uh, it's a really tough business to be in. You know, it's, it's, I think guys like Joel, you know, I, I, I love the guy and I really admire what he's done for, you know, the regenerative movement. But um, I, I really am beginning to believe that they're unicorns, you know, I don't know if that, does that make sense. Yes. It, yeah. I mean, it, it's all, I think agriculture is kind of all predicated on cheap labor. And if you can't get cheap labor, you just replace it with, you know, machinery and diesel fuel. And as yeah. machinery and diesel fuel getting more expensive, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting position to be in. You know, a lot of people want to be more connected with their food but they're not willing to accept the wage that it takes to grow the food. Yeah. And some of us that are growing the food. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Well, and it's, it's, it's a, it's look, I think it's an amazing model to homestead with. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. That's very right. I think, it's, I think yeah. it's a pretty incredible model to homestead and, but he didn't, you know, those guys didn't make that model. That, that homesteading model has been around for, eons you know right and and but you know i think that um that's probably a fair point and i think maybe that's what we've what we've been missing is that the salatin model is more uh aimed at at subsistence type agriculture you know not getting rich not running a business just growing enough food for you and your community and not not really making a bunch of money whereas um you know, there's, we ha, we all have a different context that we're trying to live and manage in, and you know, if you want to run it like a business, you have to, you know, you have to pay your costs fairly, right? And one of those costs that you have to pay fairly is labor. That's right. 
And look, the, you know, a lot of us, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I was, I was in that situation where, I mean, I had to pay myself. I mean, I, you know, it's just, I had to pay myself. I had to pay a lease. I had to do all sorts of things. I had lots of bills to pay that were real bills. And, uh, you know, uh, I just, uh, you know, yeah, I don't want to knock it too hard because I, I think it is still a, a viable option for a lot of folks. I just think, let's be real though, you know? Yeah. And it, there's, there's definitely limitations to the Salatin type model. Um, you know, and it, it's, right. it's geared more for homesteaders and, and smallholders that want to, you know, they just want to grow food for themselves in a the community. If you want to be in the big beef business, you got to look at something else. So let's, let's talk about, uh, let's go back to the beef business. Okay. <laughs> we can even talk. Some pretty, I've got some pretty good stories though, about the early days of starting that business that I want to tell you at some point. Oh, well go ahead. Just, just remind, just remind me. Go ahead. Well, well you had asked a question you had asked a question earlier on, or I think CK did about, yeah. you know, what my family's reception was to me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, we laughing when I moved back, my, my dad and I have really never seen eye to eye most of my life. And so the idea of me giving up a, a, a well-paid job to come back and ranch was just blasphemy, you know? And, uh, so I, 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 I come back and we start raising these birds and we have some major wrecks undoubtedly. Right. I mean, it's a massive learning curve. And, uh, and, uh, even, even though I grew up on a ranch and I mean, I did everything out here. I mean, I, I welded, I, you know, worked the cows and built fence and did all sorts of things. So I was sort of a Jack of all trades by that point in my life, but, uh, raising poultry is a whole different ball game. And, um, uh, we, uh, we had sort of, you know, gotten started and we were about two years in and, uh, we, there was nobody else raising turkeys for Thanksgiving and our turkeys were absolutely delicious. I mean, it was day and night compared to what you could even buy at Whole Foods. It was a niche. So the second or third year, I can't remember what it was, but we decided, you know what, we're going to, we're going to go in a little more on this and raise about 500 birds. And at that time, I mean, we didn't have the, the, you know, the little square readers for the phone or any of that stuff. So everything done, was done with checks and cash at the farmer's market. And uh, so we, we processed the birds. Like, it took us 10 days in our processing facility, like midnight to midnight every day, just going, going, going. I mean, we were going on like two and three hours of sleep when we could get it. We got them all killed in process. We put them in the big old walk-in freezer. We pull up with this big international freezer truck and loaded them in. And we go to the farmer's market on Saturday morning. And we, we, we had pre-sold all of them. So everybody's handing us just giant wads of cash and checks. And, I mean, our money bag was like this thick, you know, just Scary. bulging, yeah. you know. <laughs> and then we do it again the next day on Sunday. And I'm not kidding you. We come home and and the cash was like $40,000 cash. (laughs) And I was still my, my, my wife at that time had just moved back and we were living in my parents' house for like six months. And, uh, 
So I, I'm getting ready, my bank deposit ready for Monday morning, and I'm counting my cash on the kitchen room, <laughs> on the living room table, and my dad's sitting there. And, you know, this is my dad who was a school teacher most of his life uh, after the 80s when he went bankrupt, uh, basically went bankrupt, went broke um, in the cattle commodity downturn. And, uh, you know, he, he wasn't even making that much at that time. You know, it was his whole salary right there on the table in cash, you know, now, mind you, he didn't know all the expenses I had to pay, but, uh, that was, a that was the moment that he kind of shut up and he never said another word about what I was doing out here after that, because that generation to them, what was success was money, you know, and that's what it took to get him to leave me alone. And, uh, I always think yeah about yeah it. just count out like fifty grand worth of bills yeah. on the kitchen table yeah yeah, yeah. It'll make most people be quiet yeah I could see that yeah so that was you know I thought it was a it was a it was a it was an interesting story and an interesting moment in my relationship with my dad that's for sure so you've been on the regenerative train and doing regenerative management before it was cool before it was called regenerative. When we were still kind of all calling it rotation grazing or adaptive multi paddock, or yeah, still still kind of struggling for the terms. So, what uh, I guess what are some of the long term changes you've seen in the land since you've adopted more of a regenerative and holistic approach to managing? Well, you know, some of them have been hard to see, Brian. Um, because we've been through some pretty severe droughts, um, years where it only rains six inches, and you feel like you've taken three steps forward and ten steps back in one of those years. But uh, I think the real, the real uh, telltale things have been from what's below the ground. Um, you know, being from a conservation biology background, my my wife and I. Uh, in 2010 took our first soil samples and we sent them off to a, a local soil lab here in Texas called Te- Texas plant and soil labs. Uh, didn't know about rain- ward labs and all that stuff, you know, back then. And, uh, you know, there wasn't a single field on this ranch that was open and graze, you know, good grazable acres that was above a percent and a quarter organic matter. The salts were like way high because my dad had been putting on nitrogen fertilizer every year, twice a year, forever, you know. And um, I mean, it was the, the soils were just baked, you know. Um, and in 2017, uh, that year, we saw the biggest changes. We had come out of the 2000. 11, 12, 13 drought period and done some, you know, got some grass growing and still doing our grazing. And uh, some of the fields started to measure over 5% organic matter. You said that was was in 2017? Yeah. So there was was seven years later. And uh, a lot of that was probably a lot of chicken poop and a lot of cow poop and impact and all those things, you know, and, uh, you know, the changes ecologically on the landscape, visually the brush was 
and we're in South Texas, very thick brush. It's thicker than hair on a dog's back in places and started to open up a little more. Um, we had fenced off the Creek here. We have a seasonal Creek flowing through our Parker Creek ranch here. And, uh, you know, the, the riparian zone just, I mean, it did a 180. It was amazing. You know, um, we had been doing a lot of subsoiling, uh, our key line plowing over the years on the early years. And, uh, that seemed to really keep the Creek more full. And, you know, I think we had, I think we had definitely improved the water table. Um, so there was a lot of things that changed over the years. Um, you know, as far as the plant communities goes, we, you know, the early years was scary because it was just weeds galore and my dad had sprayed. And that was one of the big, uh, headbutting moments for us was not spraying the weeds. And I mean, we were absolutely taken over by annual sunflowers and thistles and I mean everything. And those have seemed to fade away for the most part. We do have times where those annual sunflowers were like this last year, we were very dry. We had 13 inches of rain and uh, it, it came kind of all at once. And so it was a rough year last year. And we noticed this year we had a lot of annual sunflowers come back uh, in, in from that because we had gotten some bare ground from all the termites. Termites here in South Texas are kind of our, uh, they're the earthworms of the desert. Um, it's too dry here for earthworms for the most part. You just find them along the creek areas and stuff like that where it stays moist. So we have termites like crazy that'll climb all the way up the plants and eat them. And uh, so it doesn't matter how much re residual you leave behind here. The termites will clean you up after a long enough time. Okay. And uh, you, you'll, 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 you'll look like a pretty terrible grazer if, uh, you know, somebody comes to visit you. But, uh, but they're doing their work, you know. And, uh, but unfortunately, it leaves the ground bare and you get the sunflowers still, you know, at times. So, you know, I've just, I, I've, I've learned to be a lot more pragmatic about my approaches and, and to, um, it really taught me to like take my time with my decision-making process and not be so hasty and really observe what's going on on the landscape. I think that's the biggest change that I personally had over that time period was learning to be a better observer. And that's paid off huge dividends at like our ranch at Pajarito, the grazing lands leases. Um, uh, because gosh, I've avoided so many of the errors in my, my foreman and, and our ranch tech, they can call me and even over the phone, I can diagnose most of their problems, you know, and, and, and then I go visit them once a week and we look at the pastures, we look at the cattle and, um, observing this type of, uh, you know, this type of grazing and, and the cattle for that long, that closely, um, can really be, that's, that's the biggest game changer that I've experienced was just learning to become a better observer. That's something that you can't get out of a book or a seminar. Absolutely not. And you just have to go spend time with your cows and spend time learning how to look at your grass. That's right. So what, uh, we're talking about soil sampling and that's probably a pretty good, uh, segue into carbon. Okay. Ready to talk about soil carbon? Sure. So what, uh, soil works, natural capital, what are you guys doing? Are you guys doing anything with carbon? Well, you know, soil works, natural capital. Uh, I just help when they need my help when I'm called upon there. Um, 
I don't officially play any kind of role uh, other than advisory type work, but you know, with the with the recent acquisition of Soil Value Exchange, now Grassroots Carbon, um, and getting into the, co- the soil carbon uh, space and uh, selling of those credits, um, you know, are particularly my businesses, uh, my business grazing lands. Uh, we were one of the first uh, ranches to sign up with them. Of course, we had our foot in the door, <laughs> so a little bit of cheating going on there. But uh, you know, we're—it's not, yeah, it's not cheating. Not cheating. Fig- <laughs> no, it's not cheating. You could cut that out, probably. <laughs> I probably won't. <laughs> but uh, you know, we uh, we signed up with uh, Grassroots Carbon and and uh, earlier this year at, at Pajarito, which is the ranch in Pandora. And, um. You know, because I think it's an integral part of our business model. Uh, we go a little bit beyond the grass fed. I mean, if we're going to put all this effort into doing regenerative grazing, we would love to be awarded for it. And what's really cool about the way that Grassroots Carbon uh, pays out their credits is it's with rangeland managers that are doing regenerative grazing with livestock in particular. So, um, you know, ranches such as, as Pajarito are perfect candidates for it because they've never – uh, it's a ranch that's never practiced regenerative grazing. You know, it's been set, set stocking for quite a long time. Now, mind you, Pajarito was an excellent ecological condition when we went there because the owner, um, who's also my business partner, Freda Seligson, one of the business partners, um, took really great care of this ranch and took a lot of effort into planting back native grasses and, you know, doing a lot of brush clearing and sculpting and stuff like that. So, um, you know, part of our business model, though, is um, being able to participate in the carbon credit marketplace. And uh, Grassroots Carbon is a perfect way to do that for us because they're working with folks just like us. And uh, so, you know, we're hopefully, uh, I think we'll get our first check here in a couple weeks. So that's going to feel good to have some greenbacks in our pocket. And we're sharing that, we're sharing that um, payment with the landowner. Um, so, because we are leasing the property, so, uh, it should be good, you know, should be good. It's been very, it's been very fun and interesting to be a part of the process, be a part of the decision-making to be a part of the, you know, sitting at the table with a lot of these grassroots carbon conversations and getting some real great insight into the carbon credit marketplace as a whole and, and where we see the future of it going. Um, where do you see the future of it going? Well, I think that it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to, um, it's going to be interesting to see where it does go. I think that, you know, I'm bullish on it. Um, I think that regardless of the companies that are out there, um, selling carbon credits, you know, there's a million different ways to go about how you sell a carbon credit right. all the way from forestry projects to paying transi- for management practices. Yeah, yeah. Transition farm management practices and all sorts of different things. And I think that what's intriguing about grassroots carbon is we're looking at it from a more permanent carbon storage uh, aspect you know, and those deep rooted grasses really injecting that carbon deep into the ground and no longer 
tilling the soil or anything like that. So you're looking at long-term carbon storage that has pretty high integrity. And uh, I think that grassroots carbon has a pretty good shot at being a, you know, at the tip of the spear in the carbon credit marketplace because of that. I, I know there's some other ones that I've seen that are attempting to do like a remote measurement or yeah. a remote estimation, or they're mm-hmm. going to come out and they're going to sample six inches or just the top three inches. And to me, that's not, that's not storage. That's not deep long-term storage. That's still, you know, top layer volatile and any estimate, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, th- those estimates I don't think are going to be worth anything. And then, Curtis, did you get to see the measurement process when they came in and did those three foot core sample? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I did. So, um, you know, the grassroots had hired RES, which is a, probably one of the largest environmental services companies in the United States now, to do the measurement process as a third party. And, uh, you know, they come out on their six wheeled RTV with this big core sampler on the back of it, which is like this hydraulic core sampler. And they took one meter samples and there was over a hundred samples taken on our ranch. Um, uh, it was in the middle of that rainy period. So that was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. But the guys that actually told me uh, that they've taken samples from the middle of like swamps even. So I was pretty confident, you know, that, Hey, okay. Um, you know, if you've ever tried to take just a regular old soil sample when it's wet on clay soil, you, you, you want to pretty much throw the soil sampler over the fence and just walk away, you know? So I was thinking, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, if this is anything like soil sampling, these guys are in for some really, really long days, you know? And uh, they actually did have to leave because, I mean, the whole ranch was like literally flooding the first day they got there. And then they came back later when it dried up a little bit, which that was a smart move on their part. Um, they would have been swimming around with the rattlesnakes, which would have been interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, and, and then they came out and did the, the, the biological surveys. Um, so they were looking at like species composition and ground cover and all those good things. And then they take that and they look at your environmental data, you know, your weather patterns. And then they look at your grazing data from pasture map and use their little algorithm to, determine your potential sequestration and uh they keep a pretty conservative estimate i don't think we i haven't seen ours yet uh what our estimate is um estimated payout per year for the five-year period of the contract the payment contract and then it's a 10 years for every year of contract to hold the carbon but uh you know I th- I, i'm pretty confident that i think our average could be around one and i think we have the potential to do up to three tons per acre per year i I really i really do because and and the reason being is is um you know like i said it's been set stocking and and so this is a brand new this is a brand new piece of land to practice this on and the the sky you know the sky the the potential is sky high you know i think to really put some carbon down and and, uh you know we've uh we've had a great uh blessed year of rainfall so far that's really allowed us to build a lot of carbon on top. I mean, on a lot of our paddocks, we're getting three, four inches of thatch underneath those cattle. I mean, it's almost too much thatch. We're like, what the heck are we going to do with all this thatch? I mean, but you know, 
uh, it's, it's it, I think it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see it when they come back at year five or whatever that may be to do the second round of sampling. And, and we are very happy, you know, Brian, you alluded to uh, a lot of these guys aren't really doing much of a scientific process. So it's, it's very good to see them doing a scientific process that captures real data to actually verify the carbon versus just this, uh, you know, other, other approach of, of sort of guessing. Quite oh, we can quite guess what it is from satellite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. I, I don't buy and, that for a second. And I don't, I don't think anybody would buy that credit for a second. No, I don't think so. You know, there's a, there is an argument that there's a real cost, a real, real need to bring the cost down. Yes. That, that's going to come with time and scale. Yeah. That's going to come with time and scale. I mean, then, but then again, it takes X amount of hours of labor to go out and get Z number of three foot cores, you know, and those people deserve a living wage too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, I think to be quite honest with you, it's really important that we do it this way initially to preserve the integrity of the marketplace. I think that's a huge one. Yeah, I, because because it really scares me that these other guys are doing it in a kind of a nonchalant way that's not very data driven, not very scientific, and people are buying those credits. And uh, it's sort of like uh, it's sort of like when Bell Campo meets uh, in California did their little stunt, you know, and and it damages everybody in in. When, the origin when, of labeling, right? That's what you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, it damages everybody in the marketplace when you do those kinds of things. We are not a very big marketplace right now in the regenerative beef and grass-fed beef side of things, you know. And and it, it damages the integrity of the marketplace. And the carbon credit marketplace has to make sure that they don't do the same thing. Yeah. And. Not to be calling out Bell Campo, it's just the first thing. No, but people have been burned before. It's a good example that market, all, and so yeah. it's it's a good it's a good uh, thing just to 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 really truly try to be. I hate the word transparent, but transparent. Yeah. Uh, you know, is is there's actually evidence that can support our claims. Right. Versus, uh, well, we think it's this based because of this, this, and this, and a computer model said this. That's not verified by any real-world data or any anything on the ground, soil sampling, ground truth, anything like that. You know, the, yeah. I don't think buying a forest that wasn't going to be cut down anyway is an offset either, but that's just my personal opinion. Or that could get lit on fire. Yeah. It's burning. They're all burning. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, so what happen, What we happens if I... a positive hat. We got to start somewhere. <laughs> so what happens if you buy a forest for the carbon offsets? Like, you just you buy a thousand acres of, of California trees for the carbon offsets. Yeah. And then it catches on fire. I can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked to those... We've talked to some buyers that have had that happen, and now they're they're going to go to something that's more permanent, which is soil carbon. So that's right. Um, yeah. That's exactly right. It, it 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 was, yeah. I mean, the trees can be soil carbon if you want to let them grow to their full life cycle, then yeah. cut them down and put them on a hole and bury them. Then they're then they're permanent in the soil. 
Yeah. You know, Brian, our biggest competitor isn't even forestry. Our biggest competitor is engineered solutions. So people building those direct air capture, carbon capture facilities or building actual physical pipelines that divert the CO2 to go on, be stored underground. So it's, it's actually these mammoth steel contraptions that cost billions of dollars to build is, is what we're competing with. Yeah. But it, okay. So, so they're saying they can capture, and I know what you, I, I kind of know the systems you're talking about and they're like, they're on 50 or $60 a ton on their capture. Right. That, I think that, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what they're shooting for. And I, I really question their accounting on that. Like, are they paying the true carbon cost of all the energy that it takes to capture the carbon? Yeah, see, they're probably not, just like Bitcoin. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what happens to those plants that are, you know, relying on, you know, whatever energy and technology to extract the CO2 and put it back down into, like, I saw one of them, they were, like, injecting it at 2,500 feet into a rock layer to make more rock. Or that they were injecting it down into oil reservoirs. Okay, great. That requires energy. I mean, you have to get the CO2, purify it, compress it, pump it down. All that takes energy. Yeah. And is the carbon cost of that energy accounted for? I have no clue. That's above my pay grade. I, I mean, Kevin would know the answer to this one. Yeah, okay. well, we're gonna have Kevin next week, so we'll ask Are him you? That That's awesome. So. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, Kevin would know the answer to that one. Yeah, we get to go nine rounds with Kevin next week. Oh, he's good. He's scary good. So well, I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. Make him make him as nervous as you can. He's a young okay. guy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I got him up in front of a bunch of cattlemen last week. And we're doing a little grazing discussion group here with the Grazing Lands Coalition, the National Texas Grazing Lands Coalition. I started a little grazing discussion group here, and we have one in Gillespie County up north. And uh, I had Kevin come talk about carbon credits, and the average age in the room was probably 60 to 80. (laughs) And, you know, it was interesting because they're the types of people who you're going to have to be approaching for the most part they're, oh, absolutely. The, major, they're yes. the major landowners in this country and you know they answered a lot of questions that i don't think kevin's ever been asked before to be quite frank with you and uh you know it was intimidating to him but he, he did a great job fielding the questions but he was you could you could see his visual cues he was very intimidated and getting a little angst yeah. out about it but uh you know it was it was interesting to hear the feedback in that room and you know, the, there are people, what I've come to realize is there are people that get it. And then there's just some people that just don't, they either just don't, they just don't care. They just don't care or they just don't care to get it. Like, or they're just so their 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 paradigm is so stuck on like one thing that they can't, wrap, I have done, they been can't there. wrap their head around yeah. something else, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and every, every personality you can think of in that room came out, you know, (laughs) but well, and it's like, it actually goes back to what you said about, you can't really learn something until you get to observe it or actually experience it yourself. Right. That's right. Um, so that was, you gotta, and you gotta be willing to step off your comfort zone to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, if I do this, then I can't spray this brush that I don't like, like buddy, 
if you don't spray that brush you don't like and you sign that contract, you do not spray this. Like me, next year, you know, you'll be able to hire an army of high school kids to come out and cut it with scissors. Okay, <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> and that's funny. I don't know about that, Brian. We got a lot of brush in South Texas. <laughs> um, I had in mind an entirely different context yeah, I, in I, Eastern I, I Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> you need a you need an army of high schoolers with chainsaws down there. Yeah. So, so Travis, so if anyone wants to reach out to you, where can they find you? Or Grazing Lands or Parker Creek or whatever else. So, you know, Grazing Lands is the project that I'm CEO of, and uh, that's just grazinglands.com. I also, I write a little, a little blog on there too, you know, just trying to connect with people and, um, I also write, I've been writing a blog for a couple of years called The Pastoralist. It's the pastoralist.blog. Um, and then Parker Creek Ranch is my my private personal ranch is parkercreekranch.com. And uh, those are kind of the three ways to reach me or shoot me an email. Travis. Buy some of your products? Are you yeah. still doing turkeys? No, no. So, uh, no. Uh, no, we... Uh, you know, it's funny because we've we've really come full circle. Now I'm like the uh, I'm the recreational hobby rancher now. You know, oh, like oh yeah, place. homesteader. I, yeah. I'm a homesteader. I'm I'm still raising some. Uh, I'm still buying some calves to sell like whole and halves just to sort of pay the bills around here. And yeah, uh, I think we're gonna finish about thirty this year. And uh, you know, I've been and 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 then I also have some cows still. I've been working on some genetics for about a decade that I'm a little in love with in some ways um, that work really great for South Texas uh, that I sort of adopted from my early mentor in, in grazing and ranching, uh, Jerry Shooty, and they're a Longhorn Red Devon cross. You have my make, attention, sir. They make <laughs> they make one hell of a F1 cow. What do you like about and, them? And then, and then we're crossing that F1 over to a, a more of a continental bull. Okay. Um, what a, what a, what is not to let's, like? About I know, but like, okay. so okay, let's see. Let's talk to CK, who's thinking of if I want to buy epigenetics, what should I look at for your your region? Mm-hmm. So you're in human hot Texas brush. Well, kind of, it, you know, if you want to go buy the right kind of genetics, they're going to have to have heat tolerance here, right? And okay. that's where the longhorn so, comes in. So right? you're either going to go one of two ways. You're going to go towards like the Spanish longhorn corriente type cattle or you're going to go towards the Brahmin cattle. There's new breeds emerging like the Mashonas, which are not a true Bosyndicus. You know, um, I've, I've got some at, at Pajarito that we're trying out. I, I'm still on the fence with Mashonas. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're so small. <laughs> they're just tiny little boogers, you know, and I, and I worry about the economics of the carcass size there. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it was sort of something I really just fell into, though, because, like I said, my early mentor, Jerry Schutte, who was just a kind of an old rancher that lived, you know, 20 miles down the road from me here. When I moved back, a friend of mine put me in touch with him because I was telling him about me doing grass-fed beef, and they were like, well, you got to meet Jerry. He's been selling the whole food since the day they opened their doors. And I'm like, oh, really? And he's just got this 
ranch back in the hills here in South Texas. And uh, he was raising longhorn cows and crossing them to a red Devon bull. And he wasn't just buying longhorn cows from the auction barn. He was buying the true, like, um, what they call the, oh, the word's eluding me right now, but the uh, um, Spanish longhorns. Okay, so they're direct descendants of the Spanish longhorns. So like heirloom, they, almost? Well, they, they genetically verify these. Yeah. The, one of the local longhorn associations with genetic tests, right? Yeah. And, and so they're not the massive, giant, stupid horns that you see on magazines right, and stuff ours, like that. They're, right? a thin, yeah. they're a thin, twisted horn. And, and they don't get huge. And these cows, you know, not only were they just really docile and beautiful, but he had cows calving that were like 25 years old, you know, and raising a good calf. Um, They weren't worth anything at the auction barn. So as long as they kept having a calf, he just kept them around. And and eventually a cold snap would kill them or something like that uh, from old age. And he still does that or his son still does that now. His son's taken over. And, um crossing them to a red Devon bull. And the idea with the red Devon was it's one of the only breeds, pure breeds in the United States that's never been adulterated. You know, I mean, it's never been changed for feedlot genetics. It is the same old grass genetics since the day it came across the ocean. Okay. And, and so that cross yields this really amazing terminal and terminal animal for grass fed beef. Uh, but also a really amazing F1 cow too. Um, now that we've, you know, come down the road a ways with this program and, um, you won't believe me, but 50% of the calves that come out of that first generation cross are pulled red, solid red. If you looked at them, you would never know they were half longhorn. Then the other half are solid red with some horn, short horns. And the, I mean, I'm sorry, the other half, the other quarter. And then another quarter usually comes out paint with horns. And with paint, they are just white and red paint. They look like a short horn. I was going to say, yeah. And it's pretty incredible cross. Um, the beef was, I mean, I've had, um, you know, James Beard chefs that bought my cattle. Yeah, yeah. Um, said it's the best beef they've ever had. Ooh. So, um don't let the Angus guys hear you say that. Prestigious. We've well for grass fed. For grass fed. You know, for grass fed, uh, you know, I I it, it's just really good beef. We never had a problem selling beef. I'll say that good. much. Yeah. This is how region is gonna scale, guys, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it's uh it's a program we continue to work on on the side, uh, and hopefully Hopefully we can scale it up really big. Okay. So we'll see. And and by the way, oh my gosh, they're like perfectly adapted to South Texas. Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> because let me tell you, I've raised red Angus, purebred red Angus down here, and they absolutely fall apart. Fall apart, right? Yeah. And and I bought the best red Angus genetics that are out there. And the best. Well, the best low input ones from people who I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to say. Yeah, but get, they just we're too, we are too yeah. far. We are too far south for yeah. pure, for pure, purebred Bostoris genetics. 
to perform. No matter what kind of system you raise those cattle in, by the way. So. Interesting to hear you say, you know, like like the Corrientes and Longhorns are related. And I see, you know, there's, there's people that drive by mine and they say, oh, nice Longhorns. Like, uh, I call them all Corrientes. And okay. I do have a couple of Longhorns in there that, you know, do have long, long twisty horns, but I've got Mm -hmm. several really, really compact, black cows that are probably in the five to eight year range with what you're talking about that really not the long twisty ones, not the ones that, you know, go forward and, you know, out forward and back like a Coriene, but that are just a lot smaller, smaller, but they, they just grow a lot. Well, there's a, there's a key to this equation and that's having a base cow herd that is genetically pure. Yeah. I don't have that. And the reason being, because if you don't, your F1 offsprings are going to be all over the place. Right. And the hybrid vendor. That's right. And so with the, with the longhorns, we bought hundreds of longhorn cows over the years from various producers, but you got to make sure you're buying those ones of Spanish descent, which now I thought of the word it's Iberico. They call them Iberico descendant longhorns. And they, there are organizations out there that DNA test these things to make sure that they're pure. Because over the centuries of longhorns being wild and captive, mm-hmm. lots of other genetics have inched into the pool. And, and you can get milk cows in there and all sorts of things. And with our, from my experience, when those cows cross over to the Red Devon, you get, your, your F1s are just all over the place as far as quality. But if you if you make sure you're getting good pure longhorns with those Iberico genetics, you don't get that. And and by the way, Corrientes, Brian, from my understanding, most Corrientes are a longhorn cross. That's what most people consider a Corriente, you know, in, in my parts. And that's what you're buying most of the time when you buy a Corriente. There's very few purebred true Corriente herds left in the United States. And right. And, you know, what I call you know, Coriana is that small, compact, eight, 900-pound right. cow, horns. You know, they've got the typical, what I call the Coriana horns that mm-hmm. out forward and up, and then, you know, do the sweep right. back. Not the straight out or, you know, not the curving up like a longhorn. Um, you know, generally black, you know, well, I say generally black. I've got them every color. I mean, I've got a, <laughs> I've got a bunch of rainbows. I've got some speckles, some spots, yeah. some reds, and... Even got one that looks like a counterfeit Holstein. That they can be all over the place. But what I'm looking for is genetics that haven't been messed with and tuned to perform in a feedlot similar what you know, exactly what you're looking for. Right. You know, and I know what I bought. I bought them from the sale barn. I know what I got. <laughs> I know that- But you know, but you know, I th- I I think, you know, we're you know, since this is going out to the world. Um, you know, don't don't get fooled in the thinking that you're going to take these calves to the sale barn and do as good as you will with a black Angus. You know what I mean? Exactly. But but, but, but the bottom the bottom line is what matters: the profitability, you know, right? Ultimately, and you can raise these cows on nothing. I mean, they will if they've got nothing to le- left to eat. I always tell people they'll suck on rocks to survive. I mean, and I've seen it. Not that I would ever recommend doing that to your pastures, but I'm just saying. Well, I mean, um, they, they eat trees. They eat, they eat all kinds yeah. of all kinds of stuff. Oh yeah, 
Yeah. No, I'll oh, watch got... a run past Clover to go eat a willow tree. It's... I've got tons of videos of uh, my uh, crosses and purebreds and, uh, you know, on the Longhorn side out there reaching up into uh, Wahio and, and eating the – look. it's a legume that we have here in South Texas, eating the leaves and, you know, reaching up into a mesquite tree, picking every single bean they can off of it. So – uh, they they they'll go into a pasture and eat the mesquite beans before they'll touch the grass. Was I think it was Bob Kenford? I think he says they they can gain over two pounds a day on mesquite beans. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, of course, it's super high in sugars. You ever sucked on a mesquite bean? No, we don't have like sweet. We don't have them like here. Su- it tastes like sweet candy. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we have mesquite trees here that are thirty feet tall and three feet in diameter. I'm I glad I don't. Just, I actually wrote a vlog about him the other day called "The Dreaded Mesquite." <laughs> I, it was about it was about how much I love the mesquites because right. everybody here just wants to poison it's the hell out of them and yep. you know trying to give people a different perspective. Yeah. Okay, yep. so what's your perspective? Well, I think we need them. <laughs> okay, defend that. I mean, well, I mean, the, to provide food ecosystem function. Uh, have you ever thrown cattle out in the middle of an open field in South Texas during August? They'll, you know, you want to make them lose weight. That's a good way to do it. So they need shade and you need a tree that you don't have to worry about dying and you can't kill a mesquite tree. Hardly. The only way to kill a mesquite tree is drown it. Okay. I suppose those are good fair points. Yeah. You know, and, and then look, they can become very invasive my argument is we need to find balance. Yeah. I, I, it, it, it always makes me cringe when I see people just clearing every single tree or spraying the whole field, you know, and, and just wiping out every single tree. My dad did it for years. And then when I started, when I moved back and started the, doing the regenerative grazing, my grazing plan looked just insane because I had to make sure that during the summer I was out of the big open fields and in the woods and then back in and like, it was crazy, you know? And so over the past decade, I've let a lot of them grow up, you know, and they're already 15 feet tall. Trees, invasive brush and trees. It's always, no matter where you are, East to West in this country, you're dealing with some sort of invasive plant, whether it's an invasive grass or an invasive tree Native right. or non-native, well, there, there's always some kind of challenges to deal with. And that's a good perspective on the mesquite tree because you know, all too often you hear guys like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hire an airplane to come out and spray it. Like, okay, uh, uh, that'll, that'll work, I'm sure. But yeah. you know, finding a balance and a place for the mesquite trees in the ecosystem you know, it is a great part of a regenerative ranch. We, uh, a quick story, I'm part of Executive Link as well. And we were out in West Texas on a big ranch. And uh, I was trying not to mention it. I see the flip chart back there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we always. Need my, to our, our, uh, we have our conference call tomorrow. That's why I put that up there. I was looking over it. And uh, <clears throat> I was out at the, a big ranch, one of our board members, in, uh, uh near Lubbock area. And they're the Caprock Canyons. And, I mean, if you've been out there, it's rough country. I mean, it's just incredibly uh, harsh landscape, that red rock. I mean, it's and it's been severely degraded by overgrazing of not just cattle but sheep 
in particular over the years. And they, they pretty much took all the, all the soil away, you know, after the grass left and, uh, or it washed away, I should say. And, uh, you know, we're driving around this ginormous ranch, which is like almost, uh, 40 or 50 sections. And, uh, uh, he had his son in the truck that I was riding with and, you know, we're doing a little tour around the ranch like we do during our EL board meetings during the summers. You know, that's kind of the first morning. And we're driving around, and one of his big things was, man, the mesquites are coming on, and we've never seen them on this ranch before. And he was, like, overly concerned about it, you know. And and his mesquites were, like, two to four feet tall, spaced, like, maybe 50 feet apart, 100 mm-hmm. feet apart. And I look at him, and I said, what are you worried about here? And he said, oh, well, I'm worried about him taking over. He said, you ought to see him over in this bottom draw. Well, we went to that bottom draw, and they weren't too bad. You know, they were still spaced out pretty good and lots of really nice grass growing under them. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, the, number one, they're a nitrogen fixer. They're, they're filling a niche that Mother Nature needs to fill to repair this land. And I said, I told him, I said, you know, we often as land managers, we're so short-sighted, even just as humans, we always think in hours and days and months. Rarely do we ever think about years or decades or centuries or even millennia, right? Uh, that's just out of the question. And I said, you know, the mesquites may come on and they're going to be here for 500 years. And after that, it's going to be something else and something else, you know, and they're just playing their role in this ecosystem. And, and you know, we – we often just think that we're just going to control nature and, and, you know, instill our ways upon it, you right. know, and it's just like, and, and, and there's not a single study out there, not a single economic study that justifies brush control, mesquite control. There's not one. It's, it's, you know, so in his situation where you've got a hundred sections of land, forget it, just live with it you know, and, and learn to manage with them because you're going to, you'll spend every last dollar you have trying to control the situation when he actually needs them. I think, right. you know, cause there's not a tree one out there except down in the draws, you know, was well, as, as the climate's getting hotter, those cattle, wildlife and other things, they're going to need something to sit under for shade. Right. You know, for sure. So, it was interesting. It was interesting to, and that's what got me thinking about writing about it. You know, as I was thinking back on that the other day, EL board meeting coming up, and I'm like, you know, I'm gonna put this out there to the world. I didn't mention any names, of course, being respectful there. But <laughs> and that's the board member. That's the EL board code, right? Yeah, well, I. It, it's not clear enough to read, but I can tell that it's an EL flip chart. <laughs> I mean, it's. If you've seen enough of them, you you know what one looks like. <laughs> yeah. So that was an interesting story, and it sort of gives you an idea of why I like mesquites. So did we leave anything on the table today, Travis? Um, trying to look at – I made a few little – jotted down a few things a few minutes before we got on here. No, you know, I think that – um, you know, the er- I think the early years of my life too were, you know, one of the reasons that I really wanted to live, you know, and raise my family here on the ranch 
was because of the impact that it made upon me, you know, and, and the work ethic and the, you know, it was a lot of hard work, working cattle and waking up at 5 a.m. to, you know, saddle the horses and go move the herd to a new pasture and building miles of barbed wire fence in the brush of South Texas and, you know, doing all those things. But, um, boy, the work ethic and, and uh, that it can teach you is pretty incredible, you know, and, and it's one of the things that's really helped me in my life to be able to just put my head down and keep going because, like I said, you know, there's been a lot of times where I wanted to just throw in the towel, you know, and, and I think I would have if I didn't have that work ethic and, uh, you know, and, and, and the love of the land being able to be, you know, being able to grow up out here gave me a really deep appreciation and love for the land and, and ranching and, and stuff like that. And I'm really glad that I'm able to give my boys that same experience and hopefully be better, do, do better than the previous generation, you know, did. So that was something that. Got to try to leave it better than we found it. That's right. That's right. So. Well, I think that's, that's about all I've got. Probably a good place to end. CK, do you have anything? No, I think that was good. Thank you for the context, Travis. I've, I actually haven't heard your story, so I'm pretty excited to get to share it with everyone else. Yeah, uh, I got a wild, wild, crazy story. We yeah. all do, don't we? <laughs> I was glad I made I'm it this far. It. I'm glad I made it this far. And, and look, I mean, I'm very fortunate to to have met Lou, and you know, I, I, you know, a lot of it, a lot of what I've learned in business, you know, in particular, is that. Um, about 50% of it is, is, is the knowledge that you can bring to the table and, and the work ethic and those things. And the other 50% is just pure luck. <laughs> you know, it's, it's network, you know, somebody in your network met, knows somebody yeah. and right place, you know, right just, time, right person. Gosh, just, yeah. So many of those things. And I've just been very fortunate in recent years to meet the people that I have and get to work with. You know, Lou. I think, and, okay, and, and I want to back on that a little bit. Because I think about that all the time. I know we're wrapping up, but people say, oh, I was just lucky. But it's like, yes, you probably were lucky for that short moment, but you had the wherewithal to back it up, to actually continue that stream of luck or like to get hired on or work with Lou. You know, I think yeah. that that the work ethic and actually knowing what you're doing and everything else came to benefit that little luck of a uh, patch of luck. So yeah, that's Perhaps. my rant. Sorry. Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. Well, I think we'll go ahead and end it there. Travis, thanks for joining us today. It's been a whole lot of fun. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank y'all for having me. All right. We'll see you guys next week.